The text for this afternoon's sermon is from Lord's Day 51. So let's turn there to page 563 of our books of praise and we can follow along. Lord's Day 51. What is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of your grace in us that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. The sermon I'm reading this afternoon is from the hand of Reverend Mandel Retief from the Free Reformed Church of Kelmscott, Western Australia. After the sermon, we will respond in singing with the singing of Psalm 133, stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that Lord Jesus paid the full price for our sins. It was payment through atonement. He paid our debt by taking our punishment on him and by suffering and dying for our sins. Yes, he gave himself as a ransom and a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Therefore, God freely forgives the sins of all who repent and believe in Christ as their only Savior. By his blood, we have the complete forgiveness of all our sins. As Reformed believers, we are well acquainted with this doctrine. But what about in the way we are to forgive one another? When and how should we forgive our neighbor? We may never hate our brother or even our enemy. We may not seek revenge or bear a grudge against our neighbor. Instead, we have to love even our enemies and seek their good. We have to do so even if they never repent. In that sense of the word, we must always forgive our debtor no matter whether or not he repents. At that same time, there cannot be true reconciliation without the repentance of the offender. And these two things belong together. Unconditional love, even towards our enemies, and conditional forgiveness in the forensic sense of the word. We should not stress the one at the cost of the other, but hold fast both principles, as we will shortly see. Let us humbly submit ourselves this afternoon to the instruction of God's word. The first part of this petition deals with our own guilt before God and that we have to ask him for forgiveness. We do so as his children who live by grace alone, who have fellowship with God, only through the gracious and free forgiveness which he gives us in and through Christ. I proclaim to you God's word with the theme, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. We will note three things. First, the amount of our debt. Second, that we have to forgive our debtors. And third, how we should seek reconciliation. So in the first place, we note the amount of our debt. And we confess here in Lord's Day 51 that we are wretched sinners. These words have become commonplace among us. How often do we not hear someone say, we are all poor sinners? But what do these words mean? Here in Lord's Day 51, it's a confession of tremendous guilt. However, these same words seem to have lost their meaning amongst us. So often the phrase, we are all sinners, 
is used in a context where someone tries to defend himself. Don't tell me what I'm doing wrong. Just look at yourself. Remember, we're all sinners. That makes us saying, we are all poor sinners, a cheap saying. Then there is no longer a confession of tremendous guilt. Instead, it is used as a defense to justify wrong actions. Then the saying just goes like this. We are all poor sinners, so leave me alone. I'm no worse than the rest of you. In the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple, we see the tax collector overwhelmed with the knowledge of his guilt before God. He does not even manage to lift his eyes up to heaven, but beats himself on the breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke 18, verse 13. Be merciful to me, a sinner. It was a personal confession of guilt of a broken-hearted man, a man who knew his sins, who trembled under its weight, and who pleaded for mercy. That same prayer and that same attitude have become our own when we confess here in Lord's Day 51 that we are wretched sinners. This humbling confession of guilt is also in accordance with our confession in Lord's Day 45. There the question was asked, what belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by him? In the second part of this answer, we confessed, we must thoroughly know our need and misery so that we may humble ourselves before God. That applies to every prayer. It belongs to every prayer that pleases God and is heard by him. There is no room for arrogance or complacency when we approach God in prayer. Even when a specific prayer does not contain a confession of guilt or a plea for forgiveness, then this attitude of the brokenhearted still characterizes all of our prayers. We always approach God in humbleness in the knowledge that we do not even deserve to appear before him. In the knowledge that we live by his grace alone and that it befits us to always humble ourselves before him. Even when we say thanks at the kitchen table for the food we are about to eat, we draw near to God in prayer in the knowledge that we and ourselves are nothing but wretched sinners. This is not only a confession for the big, sin- big sinners on the day of their conversion, it's our daily prayer. For, Christ, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, as we have in Lord's Day 51. Note also that our confession does not speak about our transgression in the singular, but transgressions in the plural. We tend to ask for the forgiveness of our sins in general, We tend to speak about our sin collectively, our sin in general. And so, then our confession becomes something vague. Forgive me my sin in general. But the Lord taught us to pray for the forgiveness of our debts. He uses the plural. And that makes clear that there is a reckoning with each individual sin. That implies specific concrete sins, sins for which we have to hang our head in shame, or else the confession rolls over our lips without any knowledge of our sins. Then it is no longer a heartfelt confession, but it becomes a nursery rhyme without meaning. To have understand, to ha- we have to understand this clearly, even if the confession of our sinfulness is sometimes dishonest, a form of self-vindication under the appearance of self-humiliation. Let us know for sure that no one can ask forgiveness without heartfelt sorrow for what he has done, or without true self-humiliation before God. 
pleading for his mercy through our only high priest, Jesus Christ, who died and suffered not for sins in general, but for every personal sin of each one individually, for my sins and for your sins. Let me illustrate the point with an example. When elders go on a home visit and speak about the great shortcomings of us all in general, the family members will all nod their heads and wholeheartedly agree. Yes, we all have many great shortcomings. No one feels offended when the elders say that. In fact, it does not even touch anyone. It has become a cliche. And everyone can hide in the generality of the statement. But if that same elder continues to point out to the family their specific sin, the sin of this one and of that one in the family, exhorting them for this or that sin, then it usually becomes a very difficult home visit. The members who are admonished may no longer respond positively that their specific sins are pointed out to them. Yes, as long as the exhortations remain general, there seems to be no problem to acknowledge our sin. But as soon as a specific sin is pointed out, the acknowledgement of sin becomes painful. The same is true when we pray. And therefore, we have to guard against this. When we appear before the throne of God who knows and sees everything, let us not fool ourselves and offend God with a general confession of sin, which is in fact a refusal to acknowledge our specific sin and to break with them. This applies especially to our private prayers. For we are not called to proclaim our sin to the public, but to confess them before God. Only in cases where your sin was directly against someone else, where you hurt your neighbor with your words or deeds, do you go and confess that sin to your neighbor. And only if it was a public sin, a sin committed in public, does it require a public confession of that sin. And therefore, the minister will not pray from the pulpit for that specific sin that he encountered in the home visits during the week, mentioning the private sin of this brother or that brother in his official prayer from the pulpit. But when we ourselves, in private, appear before the Lord, we may not cover for ourselves any way or hide behind generalities. In our personal prayers, we are to confess our sin by the name and ask for forgiveness, not just in general, but for this sin and for that one which we offended God. And of course, if a congregation as a whole becomes guilty of specific sins, then these sins of the congregation should indeed be mentioned from the pulpit. And forgiveness be asked for this or that specific sin of the congregation. But to come back to the words of our confession, we confess that we and ourselves are wretched sinners. We confess our own specific sins before God with heartfelt sorrow. Lord, when I kept silent about my sins, when I spoke in, of my sins only in general and refused to confess them by name, I pined away through incessant groaning. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, though my groaning all day long. Night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 32. When we, in such a personal and concrete way, 
with heartfelt sorrow confess our sins, the Lord will surely forgive us our iniquities. Before we continue, we also have to note that the Lord calls our sins debts. Our sins are called debts because it deserves punishment. And God requires that full payment be made as we confess in Lord's Day 5. Brothers and sisters, a good Christian lifestyle is not good enough. It cannot pay the debt. God will not forgive you your sin because you are trying so hard. He will not forgive you because you attend the worship services and busy yourself with charity projects. He will not forgive you because you are such an active church member. Nothing you can do can pay your debt. Not even your repentance can serve as payment. There is nothing you can do to pay your debt. The debt that you have gathered for yourself is in eternal, unquenchable fire of hell. That is my debt. That is your debt. Therefore, we do not dare to pray this petition with any confidence in ourselves. When we ask our Father in heaven to forgive us our debts, we cling only to Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. His suffering and death is our only confidence. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Dear congregation, it's when this gospel is forgotten that the people become proud and haughty. Then religion is practiced for the sake of elevating the religious man. Then, such a religious man is confident in his good standing before the Lord because of all his religious activities. I do this and I do that. I am an active member of this organization and a respectful member of that action and that religious project. Yes, we know the pride of such religiosity, where man and his religiosity stands in the center. But in the Church of Christ, it is different. Here, even the most respectful members are all humble beggars for mercy. Not only once, but constantly. Our whole life long, we beg for mercy and for more mercy. We live by mercy. And we are constantly aware of this fact that we live by mercy alone. Therefore, we continue to pray. For the sake of Christ, who took my curse upon himself, who suffered and died for my sins, that I may live. Yes, for his sake only, Father, forgive my debts and forgive our debts. Let us not dare approach God in any other way. Dear congregation, there is nothing more basic to the gospel than the forgiveness of sins. There is no fellowship with God without the forgiveness of sins. And there is no continued fellowship with God without the continued forgiveness, daily forgiveness. How great is our debt? It is such that it can never be paid. A million years in hell is not enough to pay for one sin. Brothers and sisters, the full forgiveness of our sins is freely given us in Christ alone. Now this gospel, this forgiveness of our sins by grace alone, in Christ alone, also affects our relationship with our neighbor. And we note that in the second place, we have to forgive our neighbors or debtors. When David sinned against Bathsheba by committing adultery with her and murdering her husband Uriah, and finally came to repentance, he prayed to the Lord and said, Against you, you only, have I sinned, and have done evil in your sight. Psalm 51, verse 4. Did he not sin against Bathsheba? 
Did he not sin against her husband, Uriah, when he planned and procured his death? It would not be wrong to say that he sinned against them. There is a sense in which we may lawfully say that people sin against each other. Yet all sin is transgression of God's commandments. Transgression against his revealed will. Transgression against him. He alone is God. And something can only be called a sin, a transgression, if it is a transgression of his law. If it is not a transgression against God, then it's not a transgression at all. Even when we sin against our neighbor, it is ultimately condemned as a transgression against God. And in that sense, all sin is ultimately against God only. And in that sense, God alone has the right to forgive sins. When scripture says that we have to forgive one another, we must not interpret this as we have to stand in the place of God. When we speak about the removal of our guilt before God, then it is clear that God alone forgives sins. He grants this forgiveness only to repentant sinners who cling in faith to the atonement of Christ's blood. What then are we called to do? We are not called to clear the guilt of our neighbor in the sight of God. That's something that God can do alone. And he does it only through the atonement of Christ with the condition of faith and repentance. But inasmuch as it is lawful to say that men sin against each other, to the same extent it is lawful to say that we must forgive each other. And since my brother can become my debtor because of his sin against me, because of his debt towards me, it is also true that I may and should forgive him his debt. Now, first of all, we have to note that we should always be ready to forgive. And our readiness to forgive is caused by love and mercy, while hatred and vengeance, hardness and resentment prevent one to grant the forgiveness in which we should give. Let us first look at the mercy for which we have should have in our hearts towards our debtors. We are called to remove from our hearts and minds all anger and hatred that arises in us against those who hurt and despise and slander us. We may not seek revenge. We may not look for a way in which we can pay them back for their evil words or deeds against us. Neither may we keep a grudge against our debtors, but we are to seek their good. In this regard, we may think of passages such as Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Do not avenge yourselves. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, said the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, verse 17 through 21. Or we may think of the teaching of our Lord in such passages as Matthew 5, where he says, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Matthew 5, verse 39. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Matthew 5, verse 44. It's clear that we may never bear a grudge against anyone, not even our enemy. We may never hate him or seek revenge. We have to love him and show mercy to him. This mercy, which we have to show towards our debtors, even towards our enemies, is unconditional. 
We have to love them and seek their good, even if they do not repent. While this applies even to our relationships with our enemies, it is all the more emphasized in regards to our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Colossians 3, verse 12 through 14. Solomon wrote, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Proverbs 10, verse 12. The Apostle Peter says the same thing. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Now, when the Lord taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer, he made it clear that if we refuse to forgive one another, if we become bitter and vindictive towards those who sin against us, then God will not forgive us our sins. We're even obliged to seek reconciliation with those who hurt and insult us. And we will note that in a moment. If we do not forgive our debtors and seek to be reconciled to him, to them, then we pray with this petition that God will not forgive us our sins. For we pray, our Father, do to us as we do to others. With this petition, we ask God not to forgive us unless we forgive one another. Before we move on, though, we have to note that the Lord did not teach us to pray, forgive us our debts because we forgive our debtors. We do not deserve God's forgiveness by forgiving others. When we forgive our debtors, then it is this act of forgiveness on our side does not place God under an obligation to forgive us for our sins. Our act of forgiving is not the cause of God's act of forgiving. But it is indeed a condition for receiving God's forgiveness. God will not forgive those who refuse to forgive their debtors. At the same time, these words, as we forgive our debtors, are also added strength or are also added to strengthen our faith because the Lord gave us this assurance to us that we may know God forgives us our sins just as certainly as we know that we have forgiven our debtors when our mind is free from hatred and vengeance. At the same time, the Lord, with these words, excludes from the number of his children all who are hard, bitter, resentful, and reluctant to forgive, and who obstinately keep their enemy, enmity bearing their grudges, so that, so that such persons have no right to address God as Father. Yes, if they still dare to pray this petition, they ask God to condemn them, for he will act against them as they are acting against their neighbor. But we said our desire is to forgive and to be reconciled to those who offend us, should not only a willingness to forgive, but should it drive us to actually seek reconciliation with those who harm us. We read that together in Matthew chapter 18, and we will now note that in the third place, how we will seek reconciliation. It is true when a brother sins against you, he ought to come to you quickly, confessing his sins with heartfelt sorrow and ask forgiveness. 
But if he doesn't do this, then you ought to go to him. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Matthew 18, verse 15. Note the strict privacy in this first step. If your brother sins against you, then you don't go and tell the whole congregation. You do not even tell to anyone. You go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. And that will be the end of the story. There will be no second step. Then his fault, which was committed in private, which is also addressed in private, and both his repentance and your forgiveness happens in private. That's because you love your brother, and love covers a multitude of sins. It is your desire that no second step will be necessary. However, if the offender does not hear you, if he does not listen to reproof and refuses to repent of his sin, then, and only then, the second step follows. If he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Note again that care is taken to protect your debtor. You do not hate him. You do not seek revenge. You seek to gain him. And therefore you do your utmost to protect his name, even though he sinned against you. You do not publish his sins. But even in the second step, you restrict the witnesses to one or two. And the witnesses are necessary in order that the offender will not be condemned on the word of one man alone. Again, if the offender listens this time, it will be the end of the story. Then there will be forgiveness and reconciliation. That is the aim. But if the offender, your debtor, still refuses to listen and refuses to any reproach, to confess his sin and repent of it, only then a third step follows. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. The purpose of telling it to the church is not then in order that each one may gossip in his own corner or to make it a topic for discussion with friends and family. No, when it comes to the stage where your debtor's sin is made known to the congregation, it is made known with one purpose, that the members of the congregation may all go to the offender, speak to him, and try to gain their brother. But if he still does not listen, excommunication follows. And if the excommunication happens in according to God's word, then God himself confirms the excommunication. Verse 18. But what is the whole purpose of this process? Is it not to gain your brother? Is not seeking his repentance with love and long-suffering in order that he may see his fault and repent? And why do you seek the repentance of your debtor? Is it not in order that you may tell him, I forgive you what you have done to me? Is it not seeking reconciliation in this way? Yes. If your debtor remains in debt, if he does not repent and come to you and ask for forgiveness then you should go to him, tell him his fault between you and him alone because you seek to gain him. You seek his repentance because you love him. You do not want him to harden himself in his sin and perish in his sin. You long to be reconciled to him. Dear congregation, we see this whole process that we do have to deal with sin. 
we may not simply overlook sin and leave the sinner alone. We have to go to our debtor and reprove him for his sins and correct him. But we also see that we may not be driven by a desire to publish the faults of our brethren, nor, we may, we, nor may we take delight in the disgrace and shame of a brother. Those who have an excessive eagerness to publish the sins of their brothers, to grind him as much as possible, are driven by hate and malice. If they were under the influence of mercy and charity, they would have endeavored to prevent the public shame of their brother as much as possible. Let us not seek the ruin of our debtors by harsh treatment, but with mercy and meekness seek the restoration through correction, reproof, his repentance, and finally reconciliation. What then is our conclusion? There are two things that belong together. In the first place, we may never seek revenge or bear a grudge against our neighbor. Instead, we have to love our enemies and seek their good. We have to do so even if they do not repent. In the second place, if your brother sins against you and becomes your debtor, you must seek reconciliation with him through correction and reproof in order that he may repent of his sins. And when he does repent, then you have to forgive him. These two things belong together. Let us not stress one aspect of the forgiveness without the other aspect that belongs to it. Unconditional love, or on the other hand, conditional forgiveness. Yes, these two things belong together. Unconditional love and conditional forgiveness in the jurisdictional sense of the word. These two things do not exclude each other. Instead, one cannot function without the other. That simply means you love your debtor and with long suffering seek reconciliation through rec correction and reproof in order that he may repent and you may forgive him and so be reconciled. Is this difficult? For the unbeliever, this is impossible. But if we ourselves stood in the courtroom of the king and heard his voice, your debt has been taken care of, the impossible amount that you owe me, I will no longer remember... How then can we grab our brother by the throat and demand payment and refuse to show any mercy? That is the point of the parable that follows in Matthew chapter 18. The man who refused to show mercy to his debtor was turned over to the torturers until he should pay his own debt in full, a debt that he will never be able to pay. Then he, because he had no mercy towards his debtor, he himself will receive no mercy. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each one of you from his own heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Matthew 18, verse 35. Dear congregation, the Lord has mercy on us. He gave us his only begotten Son, whom he loved, to suffer and die for our sins. We receive this forgiveness freely by grace alone. Let us not then merciless and unforgiving towards those who sin against us, but learn to pray, our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, and he will hear our prayer. Amen.